Our Old Testament reading this morning is Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah 26, we're considering the last beatitude of Jesus this morning. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness and for the name of Christ. And so this will help give us some context to work with because Jesus does mention the prophets who were persecuted. Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah escapes any uh, execution in this chapter, but certainly he was a man who was constantly being rebuked and persecuted and others along with him. Jeremiah 26, this is God's holy word. Let's give our attention to its reading. Early in the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Stand in the courtyard of the Lord's house and speak to all the people of the towns of Judah who come to worship in the house of the Lord. Tell them everything I command you. Do not omit a word. Perhaps they will listen and each will turn from his evil way. Then I will relent and not bring on them the disaster I was planning because of the evil they have done. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. If you do not listen to me and follow my law, which I have set before you, And if you do not listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have sent to you again and again, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and this city an object of cursing among all the nations of the earth. The priests, the prophets, and all the people heard Jeremiah speak these words in the house of the Lord. But as soon as Jeremiah finished telling all the people everything the Lord had commanded him to say, the priests, the prophets, and all the people seized him and said, You must die! Why do you prophesy in the Lord's name that this house will be like Shiloh and this city will be desolate and deserted? And all the people crowded around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard about these things, they went up from the royal palace to the house of the Lord and took their places at the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's house. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and all the people, This man should be sentenced to death because he has prophesied against this city. You have heard it with your own ears. Then Jeremiah said to all the officials and all the people, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the things you have heard. Now reform your ways and your actions and obey the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent and not bring the disaster he has pronounced against you. As for me, I am in your hands. Do with me whatever you think is good and right. Be assured, however, that if you put me to death, you will bring the guilt of innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on those who live in it. For in truth, the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man should not be sentenced to death. He has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of people, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, This is what the Lord Almighty says, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah put him to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? 
And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them? We are about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. Now Uriah, son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim, was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord. He prophesied the same things against this city and this land as Jeremiah did. When King Jehoiakim and all his officers and officials heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But Uriah heard of it and fled in fear to Egypt. King Jehoiakim, however, sent Elnathan, the son of Achbor, to Egypt, along with some other men. They brought Uriah out of Egypt and took him to King Jehoiakim, who had him struck down with a sword and his body thrown into the burial place of the common people. Furthermore, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, supported Jeremiah, and so he was not handed over to the people to be put to death. Amen. If you would, then go to Matthew chapter 5 for our New Testament reading and sermon text this morning. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. We will begin at verse 3 and read all the Beatitudes as we finish looking at the Beatitudes this week. Verse 3, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 3, once again, God's holy word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. In our sermon text this morning. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in this world and in this life, everyone has aches and pains. It's a reality of fallen existence. And just about everybody. Uh, has injuries throughout their life. There will be some time where something happens and could be minor, could be major, could be something that requires surgery or just some treatment. But the point is, you, you don't go through this life without getting nicked and scraped and cuts and bruises. And of course, as we age, more aches and pains begin to show up and we don't really necessarily have an explanation for all of those things. That's universally experienced. But there are some people who willingly take upon themselves even more aches and pains and soreness through uh, an intense regiment of physical fitness, of, of working out. You, this is not just exercise, but really putting your body through uh, intense kinds of training, pounding the body seeking an exceptional level of fitness or physique. If you do that for long enough, you will always, almost always, be very sore. 
You will experience more aches and pains, and you will sustain injuries. And some people may say, well, why, why do any of that? Well, the people who, who do it, they love it. They enjoy it. They do it because they love the pursuit, or they love the feeling that it gives, or they want to try to look or feel a certain way. They love it. They take on extra aches, extra pains, extra soreness, extra injuries, perhaps even extra surgeries. For the people of God, we take on trials and hardships that go above and beyond that, those that are universally experienced. This life has all kinds of hardships and trials and pain that are universally known and universally experienced. Right? Our mortality, sickness, and the way that the human body succumbs to various things, the way that relationships undergo strain and can be broken, the way that things can be lost forever, the way that things can be forgotten, the kinds of experiences we all have. Those are universally experienced. But God's people willingly embrace a further set of hardships, and that is suffering for the name of Christ. Experiencing trials because of our allegiance to the name of Jesus. Why do we do it? We do it because we love our Savior. And because we love Him, we joyfully undergo hardships that are brought to us because we are suffering for the name. First, then, today is the reality of persecution. The reality of persecution. It will happen. It will happen. The nature of the kingdom of heaven guarantees that until the consummation, good and evil will be doing battle with one another, with one another and evil will be trying to thwart the good. We have to think about how the kingdom of heaven, Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of God, how it exists, right? It has no equal, but it exists among others. It has no equal, but it exists among other kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom exists in the midst of other kingdoms. It was established amidst Rome, right? He comes, and of course the kingdom of God is about the whole sweep of Scripture, but we enter this new phase of the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ as He comes uh, to manifest once and for all His salvation and to declare His salvation. And it is established at that point in human history, but it did not topple the kingdom of Rome. And it continues now. Kingdom of God, if the Lord should tarry, will exist after America is gone. The kingdom of God is not called to overturn other kingdoms. The church's primary task is not to topple kingdoms that may be unjust, even though many times Christians have been involved in those kinds of things, and for good measure they have done so. But we have to understand how the kingdom of heaven, how the kingdom of God exists, and the nature of it. But this kingdom, living, existing in the midst of other kingdoms, it creates a people that, generally speaking, cut against the grain of those who do not know Jesus Christ. So, what are the ways that we are to live and exist? We are to fight against sin. We are to live our lives fighting against sin and the sinful nature. 
We spurn our mortality and we do not fear death the way that others do. We live for another world rather than this world. Because of all of that, God's people exist in this world as a unique people. There are hallmarks about us that God creates in us, virtues and graces that he gives to us that make us distinct from other people in the world. And this, of course, greatly angers the spiritual forces of evil and the earthly forces of evil. Sometimes God's people live in ways that directly conflict with other worldly kingdoms. So I read recently that China's Communist Party greatly fears the Christian church's influence in China. Of course, we all know that. We know that there's suppression and persecution. But this article did a really interesting job of showing the ways in which Christianity in China and the way that it has so proliferated in recent decades and grown so much has the Communist Party so worried because of the way that the first principles of both groups seem to clash so directly To be a member of the Communist Party in many ways uh, cuts against the very identity of a Christian as it goes at those first principles. What is your life all about? Where does your ultimate allegiance lie? It's for those reasons that China greatly fears the influence of the church because the gospel and the church creates a people who are unique, who cut against the grain in so many ways. Because of that, The kingdom of God exists amidst other kingdoms. God's people cut against grain the normal way that people live life. Because of that, persecution will happen in both inward and outward ways against the people of Christ until the consummation. So 2 Timothy chapter 3. Indeed, all who who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted in some way, in some form. 1 Peter chapter 4. There the apostle says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. There the Apostle John is telling us, look, to be in Christ, to share in his kingdom, is to be engaged in this tribulation and to be seeking the patient endurance that comes only in Christ. The first principles of being a Christian is that we would know God, serve him, and live for his kingdom, which will be consummated only in eternity. And that is our ultimate hope. That is where our citizenship lies. Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior. So to hear these words of Jesus. And to think about it. Knowing that there will be persecution. That we experience because we are God's people. Immediately makes us ask the question. Well what are the types of persecution? When can I know that I am being persecuted for righteousness. Or for the name of Jesus Christ? Well what are the ways that Jesus says we will be persecuted in this passage? He says his people may be insulted. To be insulted someone speaks against you. Says something evil or cutting mean about you to your face. To be insulted. Persecution is, of course, the more direct and sometimes outward 
bodily action against the church. Both the disciples, the early church would experience this. We, we live, of course, in a, a time in our society, in our civilization, where the church has not been persecuted in that kind of way. And that can blind us, really, to the kinds of persecution that Christians experience worldwide. We think about, well, when the church was first established and they were experiencing persecution from Jerusalem and persecution from Rome and many Christians were on the run. But by most figures and numbers, of course, the world's population is much larger now, but by most figures, this is the high point in human history of persecution against the church and the kinds of evils, the kinds of challenges that Christians experience throughout the world. We ought to never forget that. We're thankful for the freedom that we enjoy and that wonderful blessing that God has given to us. But we must understand how much of the world is under this kind of pressure, Christians throughout the world. Jesus says insult, persecution, and then slander. Slander being distinguished from insult, people speaking ill of us, either secretly or openly. The insult is more directly to you, being slandered, people speaking about you, either secretly or openly openly. In today's world, often in in the kind of connectivity that we have and and the way that we speak about one another in person or online, if people are speaking directly against you, it means that you are wrong, right? If you have, we have kind of that mob mentality today that if, if a lot of people pile on something that you did, you must be the one who is wrong. And so we speak today about being on the, the right side of history and everyone's trying to get on the right side of history. And of course, that is determined, ironically, in the present. You have to do this right now in order to get onto the right side of history because people will look back many years on and say, oh, well, you Christians stood for this or you stood for that. And so we experience in our world, in our society, much more of the slander and the insult, but we must not forget the outward kinds of persecution that are happening all the time and could someday happen for us. But there is another type of persecution, and that is spiritual persecution. And it is particularly being aware of this, knowing this, that allows us to understand more fully the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. If you are living for righteousness, if you are living for the name of Christ, there will be spiritual forces that come up against you and try to knock you off your path of obedience and seeking to glorify God. So 1 Peter chapter 5, there Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Our great enemy, the devil, and all of his evil forces, what are they doing? They're trying to enact suffering against the people of God, in all kinds of ways, and oftentimes that comes to us spiritually. Because if you have given yourself to seek devotion to Christ, and to seek to glorify God, and to seek to order your life according to Scripture, and to live for Him, that will not go unnoticed. There will be all kinds of temptations and challenges and trials that you experience. So, outward, inward, physical, spiritual. We have to be 
aware that all kinds of persecution may happen, but that it will happen. So if it will happen, we don't know the form it will take, we don't know what particularly awaits us, how can we be sure that we are ready for it or that we are equipping ourselves for it? To be ready for the kind of persecution that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, we must see the centrality of faith and understand how important it is. Think about a a chapter like Hebrews 11, which is a, a sweeping, beautiful mosaic of people seeking to live righteously unto God through the virtue of faith. That is, this person did this, this person did this, and it was because of their faith that they were able to do so. Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. You want to be commended by God, it must begin living by faith. Hebrews eleven twenty four, looking at one of the examples, Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of, of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And then Hebrews 11 ends saying, All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So faith is the virtue that allows us to understand that in this world and in this life will not be the greatest enjoyment of God's promises. We will not be given the fullness of the enjoyment of all that God has promised us. Because Hebrews 11 builds up to the beginning of chapter 12, which is look to Jesus, exercise faith in Him, joyfully accept that your reward will not be experienced in this life. Faith, put simply, looks forward and embraces a pilgrim life. So what do we do? We seek that virtue of faith. We ask God, by His grace, to give us a greater measure of faith, knowing that it is that which will allow us to endure persecution. But the reason for persecution, what about the reason for persecution? First, the reality for persecution. Second, the reason for persecution. Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For the sake of righteousness. And we need to unpack that. Genuine righteousness is offensive to our world. And that's something that we have to know and understand from a biblical conviction. Genuine righteousness at certain points, at many points, will offend our world. Why? Because of the sinfulness of the heart of man. Heart of man, universally sinful. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's not, about, it's not just the universal sinfulness in the heart of man, but it's the inability of our world to accept the diagnosis of the heart that the Bible makes. The Bible looks straight into the heart of man says it is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Who can know it? Our world cannot square with that statement and that truth. The heart of man is wicked. The heart of man is unable and unwilling to accept that it is wicked. Also, genuine righteousness exposes the evil all around it. Perhaps you've had the experience of your 
you're doing something. Uh, for me, I would always think about, you know, playing basketball. Maybe I'm shooting hoops by myself and I'm, you know, hitting 50% of my shots and someone may be looking on and saying, oh, you know, he looks kind of good. Someone else comes along, all of a sudden starts hitting 70% of his shots. And then we start playing one-on-one and, you know, he beats me quite easily. Uh, I might say to him, you know, you're making me look bad. I wasn't looking so bad before you came along. Genuine righteousness set in a world where there is sinfulness and wickedness, it will expose the evil all around it. So we think about the example of the prophets that Jesus said, that Jesus brings up in Matthew chapter 5. You are blessed when you are persecuted, for so the prophets were persecuted who came before you. Why were the prophets hated? Why were they despised? Think about our reading in Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah was spurned, he was rejected. Why? Because he prophesied against the city. He prophesied against the people of Judah. He said, your ways are not right. You are not living righteously. You need to return to God in repentance. You need to mend your ways. You're doing it all wrong. No one likes to be told that you're doing it the wrong way. No one likes to be told that you need to change, you need to correct, you need to uh, refocus and do things differently. Just to give you a little glimpse into the Svensson home the last couple of weeks, you probably can guess how it's been going and the kinds of things we've been, we've been doing. So, uh, you know, nobody likes to be told at 2 a.m. that you're holding the baby the wrong way, right? So I'm tired and uh, it's been a long night, and I'm, I come around the corner to hand the baby off to my beautiful, lovely wife. And she, who knows more about holding a baby than I do, frankly, she says, you're, ho- you're holding the baby wrong. It's not comfortable. You know, and all, immediately in my heart, in the middle of the night, thinking, you know what? I, I don't think I need to be told right now that I don't know how to hold a baby. I think... You know, I'll do it my way, you do it your way. Right? The, the heart of man, we don't like to be told that we're doing something the wrong way. We don't like to be told that we are not righteous. And so the prophets come to the people of God and they say, you need to return to the Lord. Repent with all of your heart and the Lord may relent from the disaster that he has coming upon you. And of course, those very things were spurned. People want to be affirmed in the path they have chosen. That's really our culture, right? I'm going to find a path for myself, and what I need is for you to not only accept me, but you need to not, you cannot even in your heart think that what I'm doing is wrong. Nobody can tell me how I am to live my life. That's the evil in the heart of man. Righteousness is offensive. Genuine righteousness is offensive to this world. But that perhaps raises a question in your minds, and we need to qualify this a little bit. Will living righteously always result in persecution? If, you're, if you seek obedience to Christ, if you love Him and are seeking to glorify Him and live according to biblical principles, does that mean that you will walk through this life and everything, all you're going to be experiencing are the arrows of persecution? Well, no. No. What about modern medicine? I'm very thankful for modern medicine this weekend. I took my son, my only son, my beloved son. We were at the hospital yesterday dealing with an issue, allergic reaction, kind of flared up and stuff. And 
So Ty, we were joking around with Michelle, you know, Ty, he's always been high maintenance. We don't talk about high maintenance at our home, we talk about Ty maintenance, he's kind of the next level. And uh, just joking around with Michelle, now that this baby's come along, Ty's reminding us that he still needs that high level of attention. I was very thankful for modern medicine this weekend and interacting with a lot of people in the hospital and I'm fairly certain that they don't have uh, devotion to Christ from their heart. Maybe perhaps a few did. But I certainly wasn't assuming that they all were genuine Christians. But they wanted to care for my son. They wanted to give him the care that he needed to make him healthy again. To, to, to get him right. And there's something that is universal generally speaking, the heart of man, that accords with that, right? Modern medicine, philanthropy, fighting poverty, fighting hunger. These are the kinds of things that we have really large agreement on, and a lot of those things are, have come out of the Christian worldview. Why do we seek to prolong life? Why do, why do we seek to give people the kinds of resources that they would need in order to live a life free from pain and sickness and suffering? A lot of that bubbles up from the Christian worldview. So sometimes righteousness intersects with the world's priorities, and we can be thankful for that, but sometimes not. But here is the crux of the matter. The righteous man and the righteous woman will not waver no matter what the world's judgment on something is. The temptation for the church is often to emphasize the same three or four buzz topics that are in vogue, that the world wants to emphasize at a certain time. And it's good to join in, right? But we cannot let that be the only three or four things that we would talk about. Our mandate is to tether ourselves to the Spirit speaking through the Scriptures, not the Spirit of the age. So sometimes righteousness intersects with the world's priorities, sometimes not. Our challenge is to tether ourselves to Scripture. Fighting poverty and hunger, oftentimes you will be commended by the strongest institutions in our culture. If you speak against abortion or fight abortion, you will be maligned as badly as anyone. Tether yourselves to Scripture. There's a further caveat that we need to remember. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. So we must make sure that we are not claiming this promise amidst other types of hardships. This is a very specific thing that Jesus is talking about. There are hardships that are universally experienced. And this is not what Jesus is talking about in this beatitude. Sometimes we, can, excuse me, sometimes we convince ourselves that we are victims while we are in hardships that we are experiencing because of our own sin. So growing up, you're grounded, right? And the temptation, you've done something, you disobeyed your parents. You broke a, a very clear and easy to understand rule that should be there in your house. You broke the rule very clearly. You're grounded. And of course, the heart of a human being is to look upon your own suffering and say, I, I guess this is my cross to carry. Or I'm going to count it all joy uh, because I'm experiencing this hardship of being grounded. Well, no, you've experienced that because of your sin, because you did something wrong. More seriously, we live in a world where victimhood is often the highest virtue. Everyone is rushing to paint themselves as victims. You look, think about this promise of Jesus and ask yourself, is a difficulty, a hardship that you are experiencing, that you are undergoing, is it because 
of sinfulness in your own heart? Is it because of something that you have done? Peter says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? What credit is that? Jesus is not talking about that. He's talking about suffering for righteousness. There are also many good causes, good political causes or social causes that, that may experience hardship and trial. That, and that does not mean that you are sharing in the blessing of Jesus because of this promise. Return to the example of China. The Uyghur Muslims are undergoing terrible, unjust persecution, but they are not sharing in this promise of Jesus because this is for particularly the people of the kingdom of God. And that allows us to bring forth really the core principle. How do you know that you are suffering in the way that Jesus describes here? If you are suffering for the name of Jesus Christ, if you are suffering out of a love for Christ, a faith in Christ, and a desire to glorify Christ, if all of those things are active in what you are doing, then you are very likely undergoing the kind of persecution that Jesus describes here. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate example of righteousness. The only one who ever lived on earth without sin, who did nothing wrong, no deceit was found in his mouth. And what did the world do to Jesus? It killed him as a criminal. The only time true, genuine, perfect righteousness has stood upon this earth, this fallen world, that man was killed as a criminal. He was insulted. He was reviled against. He was persecuted. He was slandered. And he was crucified. Jesus says in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Of course, Jesus is speaking there to his close disciples, the apostles, but certainly a truth that we share in as well. So how do we live in a, in a way that may bring this kind of persecution forward? We live in ultimate faith and devotion to Christ. We live for him. We live in him. We live through him. We live by his commandments. Everything that we do ought to be about living for Christ and glorifying him. We are to keep Jesus above us and not below us. The world commends Jesus when his teaching conforms to their preferences. I'll prove it. How much do you hear? Well, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. Right? The world commends Jesus when they like his teaching. But they will not talk about him when they don't like his teaching. Go and sin no more. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Those are things that the world does not talk as much about. So our, our, uh, our desire is to keep Jesus above us. Whatever he says, we do not question. We live in devotion to him. We begin by exercising faith in Christ the standard and the creator of righteousness, the necessity of the new birth to be made alive in Jesus Christ and to know the power of his resurrection. Like we talked about last week, 
to know the power of new life in Christ so that a desire for His glory and a love for Him and a desire to be devoted to Him wells up out of us. And we look to the world and say we would rather have Jesus than anything else. Of course, we exercise faith in Christ and we are given the gift of righteousness by faith. But that righteousness by faith, as we abide in the vine, there is also an inherent righteousness that God creates in us, a desire to glorify Him. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, The Christian's life is controlled and dominated by Jesus Christ, by his loyalty to Christ, by his concern to do everything for Christ's sake. 2 Corinthians 5, We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, no matter where we're headed, what is our goal? To please Jesus Christ. To serve Him. To glorify Him. Why? Because we love Him. Because He has saved us. Because He has given us salvation. We honor Him as holy as exalted, as lifted up. We we don't love him and just look upon him as a peer, as a friend. Jesus calls us friends, and that is a glorious thing. But we look to him as the Savior, who, though infinitely holy, gives himself for us. Many of us struggle with the fear of man. What is this person going to think about me? What is that person going to say about me? Maybe uh, Maybe if I don't mention this or don't mention that, that'll change the way... Isaiah chapter 8 is a great passage where God's people are taking the judgments of everyone around them and saying, well, well, you know, God may say this, but, but here's really what reasonableness would say. We should do this. We should avoid this country invading us because they're certainly going to defeat us. And God says, do not fear them. Fear me. And in the book of 1 Peter, Peter is picking up on that language of Isaiah 8, and he says this, it is not man that you should fear. It is Christ that you should honor as holy. Do not fear man. Fear God and fear Jesus Christ. So how does this tie then to persecution? You should not run after persecution. You should not seek it. But neither should we avoid it. Neither can we avoid it. And if this kind of hardship comes to us, we must always pursue righteousness in it. Someone's insulting you. Someone's slandering you for the name of Christ. And it's, and it's happening because what you are doing is welling up out of your faith in Christ, your love for Christ, and your desire to glorify Christ. You don't run after persecution, but neither should you avoid it. And you must always pursue righteousness in it. Take the Apostle Peter. At first, what did he do? He avoided persecution. He denied Jesus. But afterwards, he did not avoid it, and he pursued righteousness in it. So Acts chapter 5 says this, uh, talking about the, the Peter and John. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. And when they had called in the apostles, this is then later in Acts 5, when they called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. See, that was their main concern. You can pretty much say anything you want. Don't speak the name of Jesus. Then they left the presence of the council, 
rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So you don't run after persecution, but neither should we avoid it, and we must always pursue righteousness in it. Jesus then finishes by saying, when this happens, if you undergo any kind of persecution, while for righteousness' sake and out of faithfulness to Christ, what should you do? You rejoice. Why should you rejoice? Well, you rejoice... Because that kind of persecution reveals that your faith and your life are genuine. If you undergo persecution for righteousness, if you undergo persecution out of faithfulness to the name of Christ, it reveals that your faith and life are genuine. So rejoice, rejoice to be counted among the faithful. Secondly, rejoice because you are made mature through suffering. Your faith is strengthened. Your love for Christ is renewed. And it grows. And then finally, coming straight, of course, from this text, rejoice because your reward in heaven is great. If you live by faith, understand that we are living for a blessed existence that is yet to come. That may cause us to say, well, are we doing this just so that we receive a reward? Are we, we kind of uh, trying to undergo persecution because we say, well, then Jesus has to give me something? No. The way we think about this reward is we love Christ and whatever reward we enjoy will be enjoyed in communion and fellowship with God and with our Savior. C.S. Lewis made the point that sometimes people will marry for money and if you were to know the reality of that situation, you would say, well, the one who marries the other for money... It's not a proper kind of marriage. It's almost a a mercenary kind of marriage, trying to get in to that family or to that marriage so that they could inherit great wealth. He says, conversely, marriage is the proper reward of love. When a man and a woman love each other from their heart, marriage is the proper reward of that love. And he likens it to love for Christ. The proper reward of love for Christ is to be joined in fellowship with him and to enjoy the rewards that he gives to us because as we look forward to it, we say, just as a husband and wife joined together in marriage, say, how blessed is it that we get to enjoy this together and to enjoy life together. So too, the heart of the Christian, out of love for Christ, says, how blessed will it be to enjoy whatever rewards I do in eternal life, in communion with God, our Savior. The comfort, too, is that rewards will be in proportion to and yet much greater than the sacrifice. Romans 8. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Whatever sacrifices we make now, on the last day it will become clear that what God gives to us in Jesus Christ is so much greater that you can never even compare the two. So may God prepare us to live in faithfulness to him for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of Christ's name in all that we do. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you. We praise you. We thank you for your word and we ask that you will uh, allow it to sink down deeply into our hearts that we would exercise faith in Christ and love for Christ and do all that we do uh, out of a desire for his glory. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. We go to 450.